This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the king of cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool, with searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, To his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that, that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, Steve was ordered to the Boys Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys' Republic he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys' Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. He was a character forged in his pain, but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star, many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move and, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. 
At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and, and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and, and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. You know, I was, my life was all about dancing. I had just come out of Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I, I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of... Uh fall in love with a girl at first sight, I guess that was it, because, well, I sure had to chase her for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night, and that was it. Four months later, we were married. Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent, but Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let them do to stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it, but my mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. Instinctively, I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brand or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean. The king of cool, Steve McQueen, his life story, after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the original score from Bullet, a terrific movie starring Steve McQueen, one of the great car chases in history. And let's return to his life story and Greg Hengler's work. Jack Harris was about to shoot a horror film that was to become a cult classic. The Bob, starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Here's movie critic Ben Makowitz. Now, of course, the, the Blob, with its sequels and its cult status, uh, became a rather significant film historically. But, of course, one of the reasons why it's a significant film historically is because it stars Stephen McQueen. Without McQueen, I'm not sure the Blob takes on that stature. There was uh, a silver lining in the Blob for McQueen in that producer, Dick Powell, uh, actually requested a screener of the film. And, um, you know, he was impressed with McQueen's performance. And that led to Wanted Dead or Alive. On September 6th, 1958, McQueen began starring as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall. Bounty hunter, ain't you? That's right. Here again is Hilly Elkins. Josh Randall was a reactor. That was Steve's greatest talent. I mean, it was body language. It was the face. It was the raised eyebrow, the look across the camera. And the camera loved Steve. He started experimenting with a camera to see what worked and didn't work. And he was very, he was very studious about that. And this man with no uh, literary or artistic background had this incredible animal instinct about himself and about what worked for himself. He drove the directors and the producers nuts. He drove them crazy. If the script didn't work, he threw it out. The result was a killer series. Wanted Dead or Alive lasted three years, and director John Sturgis, who was filming his 1959 film Never So Few, starring Frank Sinatra, had taken notice of Steve McQueen. Sturgis thought McQueen's natural cockiness would be perfect for the part. Here's Hilly. And he was now in the movie business. The opportunity for a picture called Magnificent Seven came up, and the rest is history. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. The real star of that film supposedly was Yul Brynner, but Steve came off as the real star. Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and faro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Not because of his uh, act, his part in the uh, in the film, but just because of his presence. His presence was incredible, and that's when we really knew that he had a really big chance at making it. Here's actor Gary Oldman. You have two people on a screen, and you want to watch this person more than you want to watch that person. You just want to look at Steve McQueen. He walks onto the screen and he kidnaps you. Here's Steve McQueen's grandson, actor Stephen R. McQueen. Steve McQueen's characters all had very defining qualities. He was the guy that was tough, but without putting it in your face. He was the guy that you don't want to mess with, but you look up to him. And as an actor, yeah, those, those are the parts you want to play. And those are, that's who you want to be. You watch a movie and there's always that character that you want to be in. He found a way to always be that guy. 
the characters that you've played on the screen who have been loners, they've been um, rebellious a little bit, uh, moody. Um, have you interjected your own personality into these characters? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You are a loner? Yeah. Steve's daughter, Terry, was born in June 1959. Eighteen months later came a son, Chad, In 1962, director John Sturgis brought Steve a script for a movie called The Great Escape. Steve was not impressed and demanded rewrites for his character. Here's Steve. There's a great deal of compromise involved, you know, uh, in movies, I suppose. And I I get a bit uh, undone when people try to use me or... uh or there's compromises or injustice, and uh, I fly off the handle. McQueen said, I want you to assign a writer to me so that I can put my signatures on the film. McQueen gets the rewrites. His character gets enhanced significantly. And uh, oddly, the writer who comes in, Ivan Moffat, who'd been Oscar-nominated, he's responsible for so many of the things in the movie which we now associate with McQueen, which really are the things in the movie that we associate with the movie. In the cooler, with the baseball glove and the great sound. The The motorcycle chase wasn't even in the original film. And he would not have been a movie star had those things sort of not played out on screen. Now a cinematic rock star, the 33-year-old McQueen set his sights on Hollywood legend Edward G. Robinson. He came with the name Cincinnati. Here's legendary actor Carl Malden. Steve McQueen realized that he had a big challenge when he did Cincinnati Kid. Nancy, this is Eric Stoner, the Cincinnati Kid. Here's acclaimed director Norman Jewison. That scene where he just looks at him and you feel the tension right away. I can get the money. I know you can. Robbins, he used to say, I'm going to gut him. I'm going to gut him. Give us it. You're good, kid. But as long as I'm around, you're second best. You might as well learn to live with it. Here again is Gary Oldman. The art of it is to make it look effortless. Steve McQueen made acting look as easy as breathing. One calm evening while McQueen was getting some fresh air, he was approached by fellow actor Robert Vaughn. They had this big party, best in Hollywood, young people are there. I saw Steve out on the veranda looking out toward the ocean. I said to him, when you were back there in Greenwich Village with Neil on the back of your bike, did you ever think you'd wind up like this? There was a long pause and I, he said, what makes you think I'm going to wind up like this? It was a terrifying moment, and he didn't even look at me. He just set it out into the air. Something was hovering over him all the time that made him aware that this was transitory, this life that he was living. Here again is Norman Jewison. He had all these stories about his his childhood, and and he was he was a bad kid. I mean, he was a and he, because he was looking for a father. That's who, and I bring it all down to that. Steve was really looking for his father. McQueen was getting bombarded with scripts. One of them was a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, directed by Norman Jewison. 
McQueen wasn't interested in the role of a white-collar bank robber, but his wife, Neil, thought it was perfect for her husband and knew just how to spark his interest. One morning, we were having breakfast, and I said, gee, honey, that's too bad, you know, that uh, Norman doesn't want you for um, the crown caper because I think you could do it. And he was eating his French toast, and he sort of stopped. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Norman wants either Sean Connery or Rock Hudson for this part. I said, it's unfortunate, you know, because you could be, I think, really terrific in it. He said, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean he doesn't want me? I said, he doesn't. He doesn't want you. He's given the script to everybody in Hollywood but you. Here's Jewison. I said, you're not right for it, Steve. My God, this man wears a shirt and tie. He's a, he's a Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Dartmouth. He says, that's why I want to do it. But maybe that was it. Maybe that's why he did it, because I turned him down. <laughs> McQueen started his own production company and Bullet became the company's first release. It was 1968 and the idea of playing an unconventional detective appealed to Steve. So did something else. When anyone ever does a top 10 list of car chases on screen, it's always Bullet as number one. The interesting thing is that in the script, it just says really two words, and that is car chase. And in McQueen's head, he knew exactly what he's going to go for. Bullet was released in October 68. The reaction was absolutely through the roof, and the profits were just crazy. And Steve McQueen as Bullet just became an instant icon. This is truly where the Steve McQueen legend really takes off. He had the X Factor in big letters, the X Factor, sex appeal. Here's Steve's second wife, Allie McGraw. Every man I met wanted to be him. Every woman wanted to sleep with him. Every kid wanted to be mentored by him. He just had that extraordinary, charismatic, sort of sexual, but dangerous, but soft underneath, bright, street smart power. The X Factor indeed, and Allie McGraw hit it just right. When we come back, more on the life story of Steve McQueen, more on the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen, and we return to Greg's story about the King of Cool. When it came to his children, the King of Cool had nothing but a warm heart. Here's daughter Terry, Neil, and son Chad. It was very important to him that my brother and I had a real sense of home. You know, we were able to go to him and talk to him, not just as a father, but as a friend. When the children were little, when they were first born, 
He really couldn't relate to them, you know. He just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say, uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen, and of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant, and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... Uh, attitude and, and that certain hard edge to him, you know. And it's something I think we all, you know, deep down in our hearts thought was that was an American, you know, that was the way we should be. And he certainly captured that in The Great Escape. All right, uh, there I was up there on somebody's private road. It was 1964, I was 17, and a, a senior at Palisades, and uh, and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my match list over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, yeah, I guess he has a right to be a a little upset maybe and uh, but then on the other hand I was I was 17 and of course full of it and so I thought uh, and then another and all of a sudden right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta and I look over expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one finger salute you know and then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there, and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's 
Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and uh, he's looking over, and instead of the one finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, "Give me five minutes." And he uh, split into the house. And I sat there in the garage, looking at a couple triumphs of his. True to his word, five minutes later he comes out, and he's wearing Levi's, a T-shirt, and a sawed-off sweatshirt. And he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall, and he said, let's ride, let's ride. <laughs> so off we went, you know. Then in 1970, despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident, McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won, crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was, and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended. The IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. 
I saw a movie call on any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, and it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it. And he said, well, it's not that bad of a film. But let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen JN around? And J.N. Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. He said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there, this religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story and, uh, you know, how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Allie McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. 
When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. Really? I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a, a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. And it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you, know, you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his... Yeah his everything. They just became solid, solid friends and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced and they, they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home and um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher, yeah. he lived it. And finally one day he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a boarding in Christian. He came home one day and he says, Honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then-pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. What about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. And I said, Steve, I have one. And he, he grinned. He said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again, and, and I can have that inner peace that I wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and 
Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. And then one day I came home and I remember I I told my wife that Steve kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rasty, you know. Um, And then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under five uh, ten and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150 and so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt and he kind of uh, looked and it can help me noticing and he, he said I uh, said I've been trying to keep it quiet it's uh, it's the big C you know it's cancer here's Allie and Barbara 50 years old it was way too early for this story to happen and yet He'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the... um, Of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes... Mesothelioma takes probably, usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy... Buddy Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and, and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3rd, 1980, As McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom, but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we, we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life. And he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go. And this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories. And you can hear all that we do. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we go out as we started this segment 
with the sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories from where we broadcast, and that's the small town of Oxford, Mississippi. And this one comes from a student of the University of Mississippi, Aubrey Riggle. Two months away from graduating high school with a completely clean record, I get put on room suspension. It started with the most rash decision and easily one of the best decisions I have ever made. I bought a puppy. My roommate Macy and I went to Mississippi School of the Arts, a residential magnet school in South Mississippi, and were on the way to Jackson, Mississippi to a concert. We were stopping by Walmart for snacks, but got distracted by a cardboard sign, sloppily written in Sharpie, puppies for sale. Of course, as any two 17-year-old girls would, we stopped to pet the puppies, which a little old woman had in a box in the back of her SUV. They were $400. Three small balls of fur bounced around in the box. Any of the six-week-old Shih Tzus could have fit into the palm of my hand. I reached down to pet the only brown one, who started biting my fingers. I swooned, collecting him into my arms and pleading to my roommate, I need him. We could sneak him into our dorm room, she proposed, originally as a joke, but I took it as approval. I mean, within the last year alone, we had safely hidden a hamster cage and a fishbowl in there already. How much harder could a puppy be? I only had $70 left in my bank account from a job I'd worked over winter break. So I called my mom. $400 is a lot of money, she said, along with a string of other oppositions. Your dad would never agree. You're about to go to college. But he's so cute, mom. I'm at your sister's soccer game. Call me later. She hung up before I could even offer that after working this upcoming summer, I would be able to pay her back. I'm getting this dog today. Please don't sell him, I told the breeder. She agreed reluctantly, but turned away other potential customers because of my claim on that little brown ball of fluff. My roommate and I devised a plan. The banks were closed, but she had some blank checks from her grandma. To my complete surprise, her grandma agreed, and Macy wrote me a check on loan for $400. Our disbelief turned to excitement, and heads held high, we triumphantly marched back to the breeder. Fed up with our shenanigans, her forehead furrowed, and she grunted. I can't take a personal check. Please, ma'am, I promise it's in there. It's my grandma's account, Macy bargained. The breeder actually called her grandma to confirm, and agreed saying, fine, but give me your phone numbers and addresses. 
We scribbled down our contact info onto the check, and I spent my last $70 on a crate, collar, and a bag of dog food five times the size of my dog. We decided to skip the concert to figure out just how we would sneak the puppy past security and into our dorm room. We found a cardboard box, tucked him inside, and crossed our fingers. We're going to get caught, I thought as we snuck into the building. Dog supplies and hidden puppy in tow. My heart beat fast and my hands trembled, but security didn't even look up as we passed by. After safely making it back to our dorm room, we summoned our best friends in the hallway to come meet him. Each teenage girl melted over our illicit roommate as we excitedly recounted our rule breaking. Our contraband needed a name, and after hours of playtime and contemplating, we called him Rebel. Our news was like wildfire, spreading through all seven floors of our dorm hall. I heard, do you really have a dog in your room? At least once per class period. My friends often came by to play with the hamster already, but now every day after the last school bell rang, like mosquitoes to light, a plethora of teenage girls, some who I barely knew, came to see Rebel. For a whole week, Rebel stayed in his crate quietly while I was in class, slept in my bed with me at night, and even got snuck on and off campus inside my purse for walks. Despite our nightly room checks by the floor mom, we just put Rebel in the bathroom, and no one noticed our secret zoo. It seemed we were in the clear. Aubrey Riggle, please come to the principal's office. The school secretary's voice rattled over the intercom. In a cold sweat, I felt the eyes of all of my classmates turn to me. Twelve years of grade school under my belt, and I had never been called to the principal's office. Until now. My principal, a rosy-cheeked woman with round hips that spilled over the sides of her rolling chair, looked at me squarely across her desk. Aubrey, we found a dog in your dorm room. They caught me. Unsuccessfully controlling my nervous laughter, I asked, Did you find the hamster and fish too? She laughed, prying me for more of an explanation. To my disbelief, much more amused than angry. I've had them for about a week. A lady was selling them in the Walmart parking lot. I couldn't say no. The dog's gotta go today, she said with a chuckle. But there was no way I could make the five-hour drive home and back for school the next day. Unable to get rid of Rebel, the school gave him to the dance teacher till next weekend. Placed on room suspension, I was defeated. After my punishment was doled out, my principal, the executive director, and the curious school secretary escorted me to my room to remove Rebel. Even though I was in trouble, my principal cooed at him as he climbed into her lap and licked her face. So what do I need to do about the hamster and fish? I asked her. Her brief look of shock erupted into wild laughter. I thought you were joking. The hamster and fish were placed in the nurse's office until I returned home to my parents, who were not happy about our household's unexpected additions or the $400 check they now had to mail to Macy's grandma. 
Several weeks later, Rebel was allowed, this time with the school's permission, to be my escort to senior prom. He was a local celebrity, and my friends and I took turns spinning him around on the dance floor. Now, four years later, I've collected many more memories with Rebel. And our memory at Mississippi School of the Arts has not faded, as administrators still tell our story to every new class as a precautionary tale. And thank you, Arby Riggle, for that story. Her story, Rebel's story, and a great pet story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And that's from sports to the arts, from business to history, and your stories too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll produce them up and play them right back at you. They're some of our very best. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. And we'll produce them and put them up on the air. And now it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from some of the best leaders in America from military leaders to business leaders, coaches, and community and faith leaders in town across this country. And today we hear from Briggs Sorber, one of the original two men from Two Men in a Truck, and his family's business has grown to 7,600 employees and 3,000 trucks and 346 franchises. And Briggs travels around the country speaking to the employees of their franchisees to continually cultivate their culture. And also to share with them his personal advice about life that he's often learned, well, the hard way. Here's Brig with what he tells them. I'm a geography major from Northern Michigan University. Uh, my goal was urban planning and land use regulation. And I'll talk with the movers because I love doing that. I'll travel around to the different franchises and they shut the trucks down for morning. I get to talk to them. And I tell them, you know, I never took a business class. I took urban planning and land use regulation. That was what my degree was in. And they're like, and I'll ask them, do you, any of you know what that is? And they're like, no. And I went, I don't either. But I got the degree and I never used it. But the point I tell them that is that I ask them, how many of you guys have gone to college or going to college? And it actually is surprising. Almost a third of them have gone or graduated. But I tell the rest of them, this is your college. You know, this is it. And I asked, why do you go to college? Why do you go to college? And they're like, to make more money. I went, how? How do you make more money by going to college? Well, you, you, know, you learn a trade, and then you go out there and make it happen. I went, all right. Well, this is your college. This is Stickman University, baby. This is it. And I said, so you're going to learn how to manage people, time, and money. And uh, you're going to move forward if you want to, because you have to make it happen. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you a damn thing. I tell them that. And I tell them I love them. I tell you some things. I tell them that 68% of our managers in our system started out on the trucks or on the phones. 68%. 42% of our franchisees started out on the trucks or the phones. 42%. 
Several of them do not have college educations. And several of them are millionaires. Several of them have four-year degree graduates that work for them. You want to know why? Because they treated this like their college. They learned how to relate to customers, how to take care of customers. They learned how to take care and motivate movers and drivers like themselves. Everyone learned something here. I don't care if you have a four-year degree. You come in and you're a franchisee with a four-year degree, you're still going to get your teeth kicked in somewhere. So I'm looking at you guys and I'll ask them, you know, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if it was your goal in life to be a mover. It's like, nobody, nobody here wanted to be a mover and you're all sitting here. I go, how sad, you know. How many of you, back when you were kids playing in the yard, you know, cowboys and Indians, cops, robbers, whatever, how many of you raised your hand and went, damn it, it's my turn to be the mover? Nobody. I said, but you know, that's what careers start out. With Carhartts and Boots, I mean, this is, this is where they start. Where you go from here is totally up to you. I was talking with my president four or five years ago, and I said, I wonder what our movers and drivers are doing that were with us 10, 15 years ago. I said, get a hold of the marketing department, have them get on social media, and, and dig some of these people up. I want to know what they're doing. Tim Hudson, who was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, was a mover. We had a Harlem Globetrotter that was a mover. We had a rocket scientist from NASA that was a mover. And countless cops, doctors, teachers. And so we sent out a film crew to some of these. Can you just tell us, when you started out as a mover, how, did you gain anything from your career from just moving furniture? It's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and they would tell us what they learned about the you know, importance of showing up and being ready and being prepared. and. Tim Hudson said, try throwing curveballs after you've been moving furniture all day long. It toughened me up, you know. And uh, so we tell these guys, what are you going to do with, with what you learn here? I hope you stay here. But if you don't, I mean, we have over 500 online classes for our frontline people to take and certifications they can take for free. Start building up those certifications. We have an online resume building kit to show you how to build a resume. If you don't stay here, I want you to be better because of us. But I hope you stay here. But it's up to you because nobody owes you a damn thing. And I tell them, I go, this is tough. I know some of us in this room have it really tough. But your parents don't owe you a damn thing. Your brother, sister, your grandma, your grandpa, nothing. Your teachers, your old coaches, they owe you nothing. State, federal, and local government don't owe you a damn thing. Two men in a truck doesn't owe you anything. God owes you nothing. If you feel that somebody owes you something and you didn't get it, what are you now? Oh, you're a victim. You know, you're a victim of what somebody else did to you. You know? And then you're just so angry and frustrated because that person screwed up your life. Get on with it. I mean, I hate to sound like this, but I don't care. I care about what happens to you now. I can't do anything about what happened to you in the past. But you have to take these things here. I said, if you compare to the rest of the world, if you woke up this morning with a roof over your head, and I'm staring at you guys right now, there's nobody starving to death here. As a matter of fact, there's some of you that are eating too much, all right? If you got a flush toilet and running water, if you have somebody that you love or somebody loves you, guess what? You got it better than 95% of the people in the world 
You have it better than almost everybody in the world. There are people literally dying to get into this country just to grab your scraps. And I got some of you guys sitting here saying, woe is me. I said, you guys better get over it. I just want to wake them up. And um, I talked to man, a franchise in Philadelphia. And some of these movers were, they came up to me afterwards and one of them was, said, I don't know how to speak to you. I said, well, I speak English, so what, what do you got? <laughs> he goes, oh my God, I needed to hear that. And I go, you get it, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I just, he goes, it's freedom, isn't it? Nobody can hold you back. He goes, no. I said, isn't it funny how we can put ourselves, we feel like, in, like we're in prison, we're stuck in this job, we're stuck in this place. And we're, we're rattling the cage and we're mad at everybody because we want out. Ever try just pushing on the bars and opening the door and walking out of it? Because <laughs> you have that choice. You can do that. He goes, God, I love that. I went, yeah. And I'll tell the guys, I'll say there's, I can put, I don't know any of you guys, but you've landed three buckets I can put you in. I said, the first bucket, you're using this job. You're using it to pay for your education. Maybe you're using it to save money to move somewhere else. You're using it to make yourself better. I said, that's awesome, man. That's the bucket you want to be in. Let us know how you can use us. And I, I, we will show you. Then there's a second bucket. Most of you fall in this bucket. It's like, how the hell did I end up here? I mean, here I am, 28, 29 years old, and I'm a mover of furniture. This sucks. And I said, that's fine. I'll get to you later. I said, then there's the third bucket. And the third bucket is you don't give a shit. You don't care. You're not even listening to me now. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, every time I say that, somebody goes, <laughs> they'll look at me. But it's like, no, you're not even listening to me now. You're not hurting my feelings because I've been around you for my whole life. I've been around all of you my whole life. So I don't take this personally. But let me tell you what will happen to you. You will take one lateral move from job to job to job. This one is just one of the lateral moves that you've already had. And I've known this because I've been doing this job longer than most of you have been alive. Okay, so I know this. It's sad to me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I said, you will move from this job to the next one, not to make you better, because it looks like it's easier money or you don't have to work as hard. You will, give me a few years before or after, but in your mid to upper 30s, you're going to wake up and you're going to find out that you don't have the same friends you used to have. Uh, You have family members that you don't even hang out with anymore. It's going to dawn on you that you are going to not have anything for the rest of your life. And that is the saddest part to me. And the only person that you can blame is yourself. Look in the mirror, not out the window at your excuses. And remember that. And only by the grace of God will you ever get an opportunity to pull yourselves out of that hellhole and make something of yourself. I said, that's what's going to happen. And the sad part is you've got more opportunity than I'd say 95% of the world to make something happen for yourself. And you know what? You don't need a college education for it. Work hard. Learn and humble yourself and find out what happens. And what a talk. And we'll continue our On Leadership segment with Brig Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. His story, his leadership talk, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue Briggs Sorber's remarkable talk about, well, life, about work, about commitment, and in the end, about so much more. Let's continue with Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. They're hanging around the wrong people. I mean, I rip on my movers for that. I said, our friends, or most of our friends, are only there for the season of our lives. And as we move and evolve, our friends change. And I've got a couple that I've had since I was younger, but those are relationships where my friends are moving in the same positive direction I am, and we're learning and we're giving to those relationships. But there's people that you know we shouldn't hang out with. You know, you're smiling. you got a couple of them right now, don't you? <laughs> so they're there for a season, but after a while, and I tell the movers the same thing, you're the average of your five closest friends that you hang out with. I stole that from somewhere, and I, I thought about it, and it's right. Every now and then, you've got to take a look at it. You've got some friends. I'm not talking about a friend that's, a, that's down, and you're helping them out. That's different. But you got one that's down all the time. They suck your will to live. You end up in places you shouldn't be, or, or you're having conversations that aren't right. I tell these movers, told my kids the same thing. If I'm not hanging out with people that don't honor marriage, uh, they don't honor God, or they're pulling me from those things and making me better, they're gone. Uh, I, don't, I don't value that. I, I've got friends now that I didn't have three or four years ago. That's that evolution. You know, you're never quite there, right? You're always growing and changing. And I tell the movers, and I told my kids the same thing. You have to be the same way. You are built and made in God's image. You are a powerful being. Don't let anybody diminish you or your thoughts. Take a look at these friendships, and you want to feel empowering feeling is when you look at that one friend and go, you know what, I'm done. I'm choosing not to have you or your negative vibe around me anymore. So when you get these group of people, they start hanging with these people, they start looking at other people moving up. They look at people moving up and they, they don't like them. And if you talk with successful people, there's people that as you start getting places and doing things. It could be like building a strong marriage, you're doing, your kids are in a good place, uh, it could be a professional upgrade or whatever, and you've got friends that aren't happy about that, and they start talking bad about that, get rid of them. I mean, they, and that happens, it's sad. And so these people, are, these younger kids are not feeling well, they start looking at their friends, wow, they got that degree, they got that job, they just got a new car. I know, I was one of them. I was one of those people that would look at my successful friends and go, you'd look for some negative part in your life to, or some tragedy that happened to them. It's like, good, see what happens when, you, when that happens? When I flipped out of that and got away from that, it, it was empowering to me. And it, it was a, like a yoke, a heavy yoke off my shoulders. It was starting, you know what, I'm going to start celebrating the things in my friends' lives and know that, you know, I can get those things too. They might not be as big as that, but I don't want to do that anymore. And I think that was part of my faith walk, too. And it's, that's kind of where I'm trying to get some of my movers and some of the people that will listen to me. Don't be that. Don't look at that. And you have a choice of how you're going to look at your life and look at the opportunities. And you start walking in line with godly principles, and pretty soon your walk is lighter. When bad things happen to you, you start thinking, did I bring that on myself? Why is that in my life? 
And what is there to learn from that? And as you walk through your faith like that, you start looking at these things. And then pretty soon you start realizing, I want these people to feel this way. I'm loved by God. That feels weird when you feel like, I've been hiding from God and, uh, and I'm, I've gotten screwed by God and screwed by these people. All of a sudden when you're like, no, God likes a broken guy like me. He actually smiles at me. And I think he smiles more when I start doing other things that are all about myself. I think first we fix ourselves, then as we get deeper into our faith, we're going like, oh, I can kind of pass that on. And then you get to a point where, I just got to this recently, it's like, God has shown me great favor. It doesn't mean my life is perfect. It doesn't mean I, I'm not making mistakes. He, he has never expected us to be perfect. If he did, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Or we would graduate to a point where we were a Pharisee that no longer needed Jesus. No, we're never there. But the fact that we are walking in stride, that we are listening to the words of God, we're helping out other people. I feel if we could see guardian angels, we'd see some beasts that surround us through our lives that keep us from being totally ripped apart. You know, I just want people to know that, that you have God has given us free will. You're there in, your, in the place that you are. It could be because of somebody else. It could be because of your attitude. It could be the things in life. And I'm talking with some of the movers have had it really, really tough. But he also gave us free will to get out of these certain places too. I used this line, I liked it, in, in San Diego on Friday. I go, do you ever live your life like you feel like you're in like first gear and you're pedaling so hard? I go, when you start making the right decisions, it's like you shift a gear and you can breathe. It was wild. When you speak a lot, you can start seeing in people's eyes, they dilate and they have different body language when they get their arms wrapped around an idea. And that's one thing I'm really good at is really bad analogies on trying to get things across. I just, and my employees tell me that. But it was when I told that to these kids, young men, and there's a few young ladies there too, I said, know what it feels like to shift to that second gear when you can go, oh. I'm not talking about not pedaling. You're always pedaling. And they all went, yeah. Like, they wanted that too. Good. I said, well, it's here. But you have to decide to do that, to make the decisions to better yourself that nobody else can control. And I go, your family's not mean. These people are not caring. They got their own issues in their lives. So they can't help you and spoon feed you all the way. You have to do these things on your own. And I think if we can get to a younger generation, I think all of us can hear that. I heard it later in life. I wish I would have heard it earlier. But it's enough to wrap their arms around that they can understand. And I told these kids too, I go, don't listen to the media about what is successful. These clothes that you're supposed to wear and this car you're supposed to drive and this life that you're supposed to live and these Michelob beer commercials where they're all, they're all skinny and they're all athletic and they're all sipping beers in their life, that's bullshit. I go, that doesn't exist. It's not true. That is a, it is a mirage that if you ever were able to get to that Michelob light commercial, you would get there and it would, there's no oasis there. 
you get there and it's empty. And then the next thing is out in front of you. Start winning where you are right now. Start living your life now and let it unfold and, and go where it's supposed to go. But don't take these mental images of what you're supposed to look like. And what a terrific talk by Briggs Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. And by the way, we also did a remarkable hour-long story about that company and the role he and his mom played, his mom, of all people, in building this remarkable company. And again, it's the largest moving franchise with 346 franchises, 7,600 employees, and 3,000 trucks, and a nearly 96% referral rate, which is really remarkable. Briggs Sarber's talk... With his movers, we bring it to you. And again, share your stories with us, leadership stories, any other stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, we'll send you our best five stories each week. This is Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features in a long-form series, the most epic road trip ever, and that's following Lewis and Clark on their epic road trip across America. This is also a rule of law story, because we've been doing a rule of law series as well, and this is one of those rare times when these two intersect. On these exact days in history over 200 years ago, Lewis and Clark were on the Pacific coast. And Lewis was examining how the Indians there approached this thing called law. Their laws, like those of all uncivilized Indians, consist of a set of customs which have grown out of their local situations. That's Meriwether Lewis writing dismissively about how the Indians they're encountering on the Pacific coast come up with their laws. And they would meet these peoples and you know, they asked this really good enlightenment question. What's the glue that holds their culture together? How do they settle disputes? How do they compensate for breach of contract? How do they, if, if someone kills somebody, does he go to prison? Is he killed? Is it lex talionis? Is it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? What, what's their system? You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. These are really interesting and important questions. They're sort of universal questions of how cultures organize themselves. And what they realized is that they do have a system, that there are dog soldiers or a special elite that patrol the hunt and make sure that nobody rushes off and scares the herd away, that 
that there are people on a war skirmish who prevent the rash, young, inexperienced warrior from firing his arrow or shooting too fast and wrecking the ambush. There is punishment for some types of antisocial behavior like adultery. There is a system, but it's not written down. It's custom. And each tribe has a slightly different custom code that comes from a long set of experiences going back probably hundreds of years. And quite frankly, I'm perturbed by how dismissive Lewis was of law by local custom, given that it's really at the heart of his own American society. The U.S. Constitution gives the national government a limited set of powers and enshrines that the rest belong to local communities who do shape laws according to their local situations. Too bad Lewis isn't here to try his hand at debating me, but what I think was really at the heart of his perturbance is that Indian laws weren't written down. We had just pioneered state constitutions for all of the 13 states, several of them, because they were already being revised, and we were now on our second national constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and then in 1787, the constitution that we still adhere to today. And, of course, laws that had been written in every state, a long tradition of British law, common law, formal law, uh, legal interpretation, law schools, law courses, etc. And so Lewis and Clark took that, I'll call it baggage, that, that lens with them. And that baggage is actually quite appropriate baggage if you're a nation like America. For a nation to have a rule of law and escape a rule of lawlessness, its laws have to be written down so that everyone can know the laws and can know them in the exact same way so that it doesn't become that game of telephone where the words and meaning become completely different by the time they make their way to the West Coast and so that all of us can know that everyone else can know them too and therefore will be held by them. Encouraging peace, harmony, being nice and living lawfully with one another. But say you have your own small insular community that's pretty much isolated from the rest of the world as these small Indian tribes were. Maybe you don't have to have the laws written down to have a rule of law. Everybody knows them and everyone knows each other. So everybody can enforce the law against any violators of it. And yet, humans being as we are, that can also quickly devolve into utter chaos, with everyone taking the enforcement of the law into their own hands, and in reality, not so equally. So the Indians still had some kind of leadership thing going on, just not like anything these Eurocentric dudes Lewis and Clark had ever experienced. You know, Lewis and Clark met Native peoples with the cliché that you see in all histories of exploration. You meet a native group and you say, take me to your leader. And the native peoples were often puzzled by this because they didn't have a hierarchical system that's the same as a British feudal or monarchical system or even the American constitutional system with the president and the cabinet and the Senate and the House of Representatives and so on. And so they would say, who's your leader here? And the native peoples would say, well, we don't really have a leader. And Lewis and Clark would say, well, of course you do. Tell, you know, who, who's in charge? And then the native peoples would say, well, this person, you know, led that raid against the Shoshone that time. So when we have war, he sort of handles that. But, but he's not really the leader. And 
that person does the annual Sundance and all of our religious rituals, but you know that's not really. Anyway, Lewis Clark would hear this and they'd say, "Just, just, just tell us who, just tell us who's in charge." And the natives were really bewildered by this, and they tried to explain to Lewis Clark that that's not really how it works amongst native tribes. That it's not about hereditary. It can be, you know, uh, the chief can have a son who winds up also being a chief, but it's more likely to to work according to merit. The creation of a chief depends upon the upright deportment of the individual and his ability and disposition to render service to the community. If person X is really an outstanding Nez Perce or Walla Walla or Lakota, he might wind up being sort of the most important leader. And so in a certain sense, as white people like to term it, he's chief. But it, it, it's probably not hereditary, although it can be hereditary. But, but just because someone is the grand chief of the crow doesn't mean that his sons are entitled to that. They have to earn that. And it's all based on prowess and hunting, you know, capacity to listen, ability to persuade others, solving disputes between families or clans or individuals, that these things are earned. And people that you might not expect to be born into the leadership class wind up being great hunters or great warriors or great diplomats. And and so that this system of merit is essential to the creation of native leaders. The second thing they learned was that the leader is not an absolute monarch or a dictator or even the president, that the leader only gets to lead as long as his leadership works. His authority, or the deference paid him, is an exact equilibrio with the popularity or voluntary esteem he has acquired among the individuals of his band or nation. So the leader can say, I think we should go hunting next week Thursday because I I believe there's a herd of elk nearby. And if they go hunting and that works out, uh, then the next time he says, I think we should go hunting uh, on Friday, they're likely to listen. But if, if his leadership isn't really working, then people just turn away. They don't depose him. They don't assassinate him. They don't recall him. They just sort of say, yeah, we're not following you anymore. Uh, you, you, you're not a very good leader. And, and that this works out. It doesn't require you know, formal articles of impeachment or coup d'etat that leaders are followed to the extent that they deserve to be followed and they cease to be followed when they don't really do good things. And it's, it works out in a very informal way that is you know, completely different from the leadership model that Lewis and Clark would have imbibed from their study of history or from growing up in a constitutional republic. And one, one final piece on this, and that is that amongst the Shoshone, Lewis is having this conversation, and this young man comes up to him, and through interpreters, of course, he says, well, you know, you keep telling us to stop going to war, to live in peace, and so on and so forth. He said, but but if we did that, how would we get leaders? A young fellow just asked me, if they were in a state of peace with all their neighbors, what would the nation do for chiefs? Because the people we turn to as leaders are the ones that have been successful in the hunt 
were successful in war, who led the skirmish against the Walla Walla, who led, who led the skirmish against the Crow, if you're telling us that we must never fight wars, then how will we know how to d derive our, our leadership class? He added that the chiefs must shortly die and that the nation could not exist without chiefs. And the same young man says, and how will we get women? Because when we want to court a woman, the question that she and her family ask is, how many horses have you stolen or raised? How, how did you do on that hunt? How did you do in that war skirmish last year? And he said, if we follow your advice, the very ways in which we show merit in our tribe will be eroded or disappear, and then we won't know quite how to do these things that are central to our social structure. So what do you have in mind? And you know, Lewis is, I think, just flummoxed by this and just concludes that their ways are not our ways and our ways are not their ways. And thanks, as always, to Alex for his great work on this series, and thanks to Clay Jenkinson. And you can find more of Clay Jenkinson's work at claydjenkinson.com. He's one of the world's foremost experts on Lewis and Clark. The most epic road trip ever, our 36th feature, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>